if you will excuse me, my eyes no longer see print that well, so I must use a laptop that I can expand very widely to be able to see what I am to say. But let's begin. I always begin with, when we open up the Word of God, I always begin with a prayer that's based out of Psalm 119. David said, O Lord, O Lord, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, O Lord, that I might see wondrous things from your law. And Lord, that is our prayer tonight. Open our hearts, open our eyes, that we might see wondrous things from your word. We yield ourselves to you, Lord, that that you would continually guide us into all truth by your word. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, my friends, over the past few years, I have grown to appreciate and to deeply respect and love both of your pastors. I love them for their hard work. I appreciate them for their steadfastness in proclaiming God's unchanging word. And I am truly humbled and I am honored to be able to address you this evening. As Pastor Harris and I have gotten to know one another, I've shared with him the testimony of God's transforming grace not only in my own life, but also in the life of our local fellowship in Boyertown. And I have been privileged. I have been honored to serve as a senior pastor in Harvest Fellowship for the past 29 years. And prior to that, I served with my wife together in youth ministry for 11 years. So as you can see, Sharon and I have a very, very long history at Harvest Fellowship. We actually met one another in a Wednesday evening Bible study. And on Sunday, on Saturday, August the 9th, Sunday is always in my thoughts. But on Saturday, August the 9th, 1980, the very first service that was ever held on our property where we now gather to worship was our wedding. Neither my wife nor I were brought up in a Christian home. As a matter of fact, both of us come from broken homes. But God, God who sets the solitary in a family. Psalm 68 says that God sets the solitary in a family and God set the two of us in a family of believers where we would grow and learn to serve him. Well, as a young man, I went to work for a local grocery store which just so happened to be down the street from an Assemblies of God Bible College. Now, many of my co-workers were students in that Bible college, and one of them was working with a small church plant that was in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. And it was through his invitation that I began attending the church that I would one day pastor. In that little, little church plant, I experienced my first ever taste of expositional preaching. And it literally ignited a fire within me, a longing to know God's word, a longing to saturate my mind with God's holy word. And I began gathering commentaries and reading church history. And our youth ministry began to grow exponentially. 
The pastor of the church took me under his wing and he taught me biblical languages in his basement one night a week. And he helped me to obtain a teaching degree from Cornerstone Theological Seminary. In the course of time, that particular pastor, the pastor of our church, somehow, well, somehow he became enamored with the Word of Faith movement. And he began preaching the health and prosperity gospel that was made popular by preachers on TV like Earl Roberts or Kenneth Hagin or Kenneth Copeland. So late in the 1980s, our worship services, well, were designed to stir the emotions rather than focus on God's word. Self-proclaimed prophets would stand up and they would begin to declare, Thus saith the Lord. And the false doctrine, the false doctrine that the preacher continued to bring from the pulpit literally made me quiver in my seat. There were times where my wife would put her hand on my knee because my knee was just going like this because it was so grievous to my soul. I often say I finally came to that famous Popeye movement. You know what the Popeye movement is? It's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. Well, I came to that moment and, well, I spoke to the pastor privately about his false teaching. And when he rebuked me, I ended up having to leave the church for a period of time. Well, it just so happened at that particular time in God's providence... Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia was running a ministry training program. And even though I had been through what they called the seminary, I went down to Calvary Chapel and I worked with Pastor Joe there for three and a half years and attended their ministry training program. And the month, the very month that I completed my training at Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia, the elders of the church in Boyertown asked to meet with me. As it turned out, the previous pastor had formed an inappropriate relationship with a staff member and they were preparing to let him go. Because of my long history in youth ministry there at the church, well, they asked if I would fill in the pulpit until they found someone. And that was 29 years ago and they're still looking. (laughs) Over time, by the grace of God and for his glory, through the preaching of his word, Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, our little church in Boyertown was radically transformed. Today, Harvest Fellowship is a sound Bible fellowship. It is established on the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, and we boldly declare a salvation that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as is revealed in the scriptures alone, and for the glory of God alone. Alone. Sadly, I was never taught the essential doctrines of the historic Protestant church and all of the institutions that I attended. But the Lord faithfully and continuously sent mature men to help me. Men that were, some of them had master's degrees in theology, some had doctorate degrees, and here I am just learning the word of God, but they were gentle and came and they helped me along the way. And God graciously continued his work of transforming our church. Now, while most charismatics, 
would agree with the principle of sola scriptura. Yeah, we agree with that. But I can say from my own experience that they do not hold to the authority or the sufficiency of scripture in their practice. Most charismatic believers consider the subjective impressions of the prophetic words that they speak that they supposedly receive from the Holy Spirit to be equal in authority to the written scripture. I've had multiple, uh, multiple conversations, multiple debates with charismatic believers as to the sufficiency of scripture. And while they say that they believe it, they also believe that the impressions that they receive from the Holy Spirit are equal in authority to the Word of God. Some would say, God told me this and God told me that. Or I was looking out the window just the other day and I saw a bird fly by and God told me that he's going to send revival to the church through that bird. Sadly, the impressions that they feel, the visions and dreams that they see, regardless of how bizarre they are, they cannot come into question by any outside authority because they are convinced that they are the word of God. Now, because Pastor Harris is familiar with my background, he asked me to address the error of charismatic theology. And honestly, that subject could take a month of Sundays to address. So we'll only be able to scrape the surface this evening in our time together. But what I'd like to address with you are three points. Isn't that the way all of us preachers do? There are three points. Yeah. Anyway, the first is, we'll call it the second blessing. The second blessing. What is that? Where did it come from? Then we'll deal with extra-biblical revelation. Does God give new revelation today? And thirdly, and we'll just touch on this one, an over-realized eschatology. An over-realized eschatology. Is the fullness of the kingdom of God here and now, right now? We'll deal with that. Well, you may or may not have heard this term, the second blessing. So allow me to provide a, a brief historical background for you. John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist movement, is generally credited with, the, with originating the term the second blessing. He taught that the second blessing was an act of God whereby a believer was granted deliverance from both internal and external sin. He believed that this perfection could be either attained through gradual growth in grace or by an instantaneous second work of grace. And over time, Wesley's doctrine of Christian perfectionism morphed into a number of different forms. And while there is a diversity among those forms, they all share the common principle that a Christian must seek an additional blessing subsequent to conversion that elevates them to a higher level of spirituality. Now, Oberlin College professors Charles Finney and Asa Mahan promoted and extended Wesley's holiness movement by linking the doctrine of perfection with a, a crisis experience of a second blessing, which they called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
And they believed that this baptism provided believers with a greater power for sanctification and a greater power for ministry. Well, Finney wrote in 1839 that believers must yield themselves to the Holy Spirit and thus receive him by faith after their conversion. You see, Finney held that while the promise of the Holy Spirit was fulfilled at at Pentecost, every believer must individually appropriate the Spirit to his own life by faith. Now, a modern version of Finney's doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit can be found in the Assemblies of God doctrinal statement that reads like this. The most distinguishing features of the baptism of the Holy Spirit are these. Number one, it is, the, it is theologically and experientially distinguishable from and subsequent to the new birth. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something very different from the new birth, and it is distinguishable from that. It's theologically distinguishable from that as well. The second thing in their doctrinal statement is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is always accompanied by speaking in tongues. And finally, their third point in their doctrinal statement is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is distinct in purpose from the Spirit's work of regenerating the heart and life of a repentant sinner. So, the essence of this doctrine then teaches that believers who do not speak in tongues have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And from my experience, this doctrine effectively divides the church into two groups. You have the haves and you have the have-nots. The haves and the have-nots. And this promotes a spiritual elitism among those who speak in tongues. Now, this reminds me of a rhetorical question that the Apostle Paul asked the believers in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul said, Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Of course, the context of that question, the answer is no. No, Christ is not divided. The first four chapters of 1 Corinthians tell us that Christ is not divided. So, in Bible college, I was taught that this second blessing was experienced by individuals who were in Ephesus, and the, the um, history of that is found in Acts chapter 19. And this is what we were taught. When the Apostle Paul met certain persons that he called disciples. So let me begin reading in Acts chapter 19 and verse 2, where Luke writes, and he says, And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe on the one who was to come after him, and that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Well, Pentecostal and charismatic preachers look at this portion of scripture as a template. 
They look at this portion of scripture as a model that proves that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a separate and distinct work of grace subsequent to regeneration. But in order to believe that, well, in order to believe that, you have to assume that these Ephesian disciples were actually true, regenerate believers on the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem is that not everyone who is called the disciple in the New Testament, is actually a true believer. The word simply means a learner. A disciple is a a learner. For example, the same word, disciple, is used to describe the disciples of the Pharisees in Mark chapter 2.18 and Luke chapter 5 and verse 33. It's also used to describe the disciples of John the Baptist in Mark chapter 9, verse 14, 11, 2, and Luke chapter 5, verse 33. This same term, the same term, disciples, is used to describe the crowd who abandoned the Lord Jesus. Remember when he fed them? He fed the 5,000 in the morning. They're hungry. They're looking for breakfast. They go across the, the Sea of Galilee, which isn't all that far to go across, but they find them and they say, hey, we're hungry again. We're hungry again. And then he speaks to them about the true manna from heaven. That he is the manna that has come from heaven. And what do they do? They turn and leave. Jesus looks at his disciples. He says, are you going to leave also? Remember what Peter said? Peter said, Lord, where can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. But those who were in the crowd in Acts... um, John chapter 6 and verse 33, they're also called disciples. So, I was taught that the disciples in Acts chapter 19 were without question. They were true believers. But when you take a closer look at Acts 19, those who are called disciples were only baptized in the baptism of John, which again was a baptism of repentance. They did not hear the gospel proclaimed by Christ, nor did they know anything at all about the Holy Spirit who had come at Pentecost. So Paul's dialogue with these individuals proves to me that they were not true believers because they did not know that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And Paul did not instruct them about how to receive the Holy Spirit. He instructed them about the Messiah, about Jesus Christ. So we're talking about, is this a subsequent work of grace? No, this came at the same time as their regeneration. I believe that the scripture teaches that. Well, as a young believer, I witnessed what was called tarrying services. You may never have heard about this. But there were tarrying services when believers waited on the Lord for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. A crowd would gather and we'd be praying and the pastor would lay his hands on people and we're waiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you know that it would come? Well, it would come when they began speaking in tongues. Well... There was coaching that took place. Sometimes we waited for hours and hours. And the coaches would encourage people to say the first thing that comes to your mind. I remember speaking to one Pentecostal youth pastor who used to joke with me about these waiting meetings, waiting for the Holy Spirit. And he said, we used to say, see my tie, tie my tie. 
see my tie tie my or gotta buy a Hyundai, gotta buy a Hyundai. And he would say this was, he was Pentecostal, but he would somehow think these kinds of waiting meetings to him made no sense. Because if in fact the Spirit of God was going to come in power upon a people, as he did on the day of Pentecost, there would be no coaching, there would be no waiting. He's sovereign. And he comes upon those in the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church, to bring the spirit, uh, to, to empower them to go into all of the world to proclaim the gospel. Anyway, unlike the miraculous gift of tongues that took place on the day of Pentecost, when thousands of people in Jerusalem heard the wonderful works of God in their own languages, what passes for the gift of tongues today is nothing more than gibberish. In his book, Strange Fire, John MacArthur writes, Dennis Bennett, whose personal charismatic experience helped to spark the charismatic renewal movement in the 1960s, explains the gift of tongues this way. You never know. You never know what a tongue is going to sound like. I had an acquaintance whose tongue sounded like rub-a-dub-dub. Rub-a-dub-dub. Okay, well, that's when he spoke in tongues. But he had a great blessing from doing that. Now, there is... There are people who study language, linguistics professors. One linguistics professor, whose name was William Samrin, of the University of Toronto, spent 15 years studying the gift of tongues. And he came to the conclusion, in spite of superficial similarities, glossialia, which is the gift of tongues, is fundamentally not a language. All specimens of tongues, this is after 15 years of studying, that have ever been studied have produced no features that would even suggest that they reflect some kind of communication system. Well, a study of historic Protestantism reveals that the movement has now undergone three stages. Some of them call them three waves. There have been three waves of the Spirit that have come. Of course, the first wave was the original Pentecostal movement, which began around 1900 with the teachings of Charles Parham, who was instrumental in what was called the Azusa Street Revival, which took place in 1906. Of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, and healings were marks of this first wave. But... Parham's moral failures cast a dark shadow over that initial move in the early 1900s. Well, then there is a second wave. The second wave of Pentecostalism, which came to be known as the charismatic renewal, took place in the 1960s. And this was a, well, it was a kinder, kinder, gentler form of Pentecostalism that infiltrated some of the mainline denominations and even the Roman Catholic Church. And the second wave also gave rise to the Word of Faith movement. The name, name it, claim it movement, is what we see when we turn on Christian TV so many times. There are faith and prosperity Preachers that are there filling the airwaves. But then there is a third move. The third wave of Pentecostal or charismatic uh, movement began in the 1980s. 
And it's sometimes called the third wave of the Holy Spirit or the signs and wonders movement. Now, this name, the third wave, was coined by C. Peter Wagner. C. Peter Wagner was a former professor at the Fuller Theological Seminary. And he heads up an influential group who is now called the New Apostolic Reformation, or for short, the NAR. Now, like other charismatic movements, the third wave emphasis uh, emphasized experience over scripture, emphasized mysticism over doctrine, and it holds the subjective words of the prophets, the prophetic utterances, on the same level as holy scripture. Now, this third wave is where we move into what is extra-biblical revelation. You see, the new apostolic reformation gives great authority to individuals that they believe are modern-day apostles and modern-day prophets. They believe as the church unifies behind their apostles that they will develop greater and greater supernatural powers and eventually, they'll be able to perform mass healings and, super, and, and supersede the law of physics. And these miraculous signs are meant to encourage a, a massive wave of new converts into Christianity. They believe that all of these wonders and signs that will be done will bring multitudes to faith in Christ. They have declared that their apostles are destined to receive great wealth that will enable the church to establish God's kingdom here on the earth. The apostles and the prophets of the NAR are deeply involved also in American politics. They back certain candidates. They hold 24-7 prayer rallies in Washington, D.C., leading up to national elections. Now, don't get me wrong. There is nothing wrong with praying. There's nothing wrong with praying for our leaders. I believe that Peter tells us that we're to do that. But when it comes to upholding these conservative leaders and making prophetic utterances speaking of their great power and how they're going to help to usher the kingdom of God in, as they overcome politics, as they overcome education, as they overcome media, as they overcome what they call the seven mountains of influence in the United States, that they will then turn around and force the Son of God to come back again. They'll hand the kingdom over to him once they take over these seven mountains of influence around the world. Well, the prophets in the NAR are almost as important as the apostles are. They believe that they have been empowered to receive new revelations from God that will aid the church in establishing dominion on the earth. According to the NAR, only prophets and occasionally apostles can obtain new revelation. Evangelist pastors and teachers cannot do that. But the prophets of the NAR, they receive their new revelations and they are crucial to overcoming the world. And the success of the church depends on the apostles who will then be following the words of the prophets in the new revelation that comes so that they will provide a pathway to Christ's eventual return. Now with this in mind, I think it would be good for us to ask the question, Is God 
presently, even today, still appointing apostles and prophets in the church? Is he appointing apostles? Is he appointing prophets in the church today? Most charismatic believers point to Ephesians chapter 4 to affirm what they consider to be the fivefold ministry and a continuation of the gifts of apostles and prophets in the church today. So let's read that. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11, where Paul writes and he says, And he gave the apostles... The prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That all sounds really great. And I look forward to that. When we grow in maturity, grow in grace, until we really reflect the image of Christ. But you see, the charismatic doctrine holds that because the church will not attain the unity of the faith and the full and complete knowledge of the Son of God until the Lord returns, then we still need the ministry of apostles and prophets in the church today. Now, is that the right understanding of this particular text in Ephesians? Let's break it down just a bit. That interpretation might be possible if it weren't for verse 12. You see, verse 12 kind of throws it out of kilter. If verse 12 was omitted, then that might be a right interpretation. But grammatically, the word until that we find in verse 13 refers back to the nearest participle, which is the found in verse uh, 12, which is building up, building up. So the saints will continue the ministry of building up the church until they attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, as he said. But it is the saints who are doing that work of building up the body. It's not the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, according to this text. It is the saints who are at work. Now let's keep following this through. When we rightly divide the word, it is the building up of the body of Christ by the saints of God, not the fivefold ministry that will continue until we all reach the maturity that is spoken of in verse 13. In addition to that, when you evaluate the biblical qualifications of an apostle as they are described in the book of Acts, you would have to agree that there's absolutely no one No one in the world today that could qualify for this office. You see, in Acts chapter 1, when the time came to replace Judas, Peter Peter stood up among the apostles and he presented them with two indispensable characteristics that are to determine the qualifications of an apostle. And those two things are, first, they must be an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord. Second, they must be directly appointed by Christ himself. In addition to that, we remember in Matthew chapter 10 that Jesus gave the apostles power to confirm the gospel through miraculous signs and wonders. In verse 1, and when he had called unto, his, unto him his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sicknesses and all manner of diseases. And we see this continuing in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, 433, 512, 814. It continued for a period of time in the book of Acts. 
And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, the Apostle Paul confirmed his, his apostleship with these words. He said, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Paul is standing up for his apostleship there in Corinth when they were questioning if he was truly an apostle. And he's confirming it by what? Well, by the signs and wonders that apostles would do. But as the years went by, let's think about it. As the years went by, the word of God took form. It took form. The gospels were being written. Epistles were being sent back and forth. Peter's the one who said, you know, Paul writes things and I'm not so sure I understand. They must be the word of God. They are the word of God. So the word of God is now taking form. And instead of sending a handkerchief off to Timothy, instead of going and laying hands on Timothy, Paul said this. He said, you know what? No longer drink only water, but use a little bit of wine for your stomach and for your frequent ailments. Why didn't he just pray a prayer and heal him? Why did he say, drink a little wine for your ailments? Well, I would submit to you that the original apostles who served as God's prophets in the writing of Holy Scripture were used by God to lay the foundation of the New Testament church. And once that foundation was laid, there were no more apostles appointed by Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation. This is Paul speaking of the foundation of the church that he laid as an apostle there in the city of Corinth. And then he said, someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Writing to the church at Ephesus, Paul said in chapter 2 and verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, speaking to the Gentiles who have now come into the body of Christ along with the Jews, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Well... In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 8, Paul states that he was the last eyewitness of Christ's resurrection and the last and the least of all of the apostles to be appointed by Christ. With all of these things from the scripture given to us, then I would say to you, there are no more apostles or prophets in the church today. But I am happy to say this that the ministry of the original apostles and prophets did not come to an end with their death. Although they themselves have gone on to be with the Lord, the church continues to receive powerful ministry through the words that these apostles have written down, these inscripturated words that have been given to us. The power of God is in their words. We no longer need to have men serving in the office of apostle or prophet because the foundation of the church has been laid. The words have been penned by the apostles and prophets. And according to the writer of Hebrews... These words are living. These words are active. These words are sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We don't need a new revelation. 
What we need is an understanding of the true word of God that was given to us by the apostles and prophets. Now, the third error that I'd like to point out, we'll just deal with this quickly, is an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end things, the study of end times. So an over-realized eschatology is bringing those things that are in the kingdom to come, bringing them into the here and now. Instead of the almost, not yet, we have, yes, the fullness of it is here now. So, by definition, an overrealized eschatology is when a believer expects that the fullness of the kingdom of God can and should be realized here and now in the church age. Let's take a look at what that might look like. Revelation chapter 21. This is my go-to portion of scripture. John's description of the kingdom Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her bridegroom. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. How our hearts long for that day when the former things will have passed away. The charismatic preachers, on the other hand, would say that since Jesus has come, and with him he brought the kingdom, there should be no more evil in the world. Everyone should be healed of all sicknesses. There should be no poverty in the world. There should be no suffering in the world. And everything should be the way that God designed it to be here and now. If only you have the faith to experience it. If only you have the faith to believe that, then it will be. Now, one prominent man who left Harvest early in my ministry came to a a funeral that I had done. Now, he hadn't been in the church for maybe a year, but he came to a funeral for someone that I was... Um, officiating the funeral. And after the funeral was over, he came to me and he said, I see you still don't have enough faith to grow hair. You can laugh at that. That was funny. I see, but you know, the sad thing is, he was dead serious. He was dead serious that my bald head was because I did not have enough faith to grow hair. But that's the kind of far-out thing. This is not an infirmity. My father was bald. His father was bald. You know, it is, as, as I said to your beautiful pastor, <laughs> God only made so many perfect heads, and the rest he covered with hair. <laughs> See, I stole that one from you, so you can't use it now. <laughs> But friends, when we contemplate the kingdom of God, we believe that there is a glorious day on the horizon 
when we will walk with the Lord in resurrected bodies. Then, and only then, will he wipe every tear from our eyes. Then there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more death because the former things have passed away. Right now, as Paul said, we see through a glass darkly. But then, we will see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know even as I am known. Right now, the kingdom of God is upon us. But there is a fulfillment of that kingdom when Christ the King comes and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. And he comes to rule and reign. Then, then all will be fulfilled. Then all that we long for that day will finally arrive. We believe that. Now, in his ministry, Jesus declared that the kingdom of God had come. But the framework of his teaching and that of the New Testament is this. The kingdom of God has come, the already. But the fullness of that kingdom will only come at the second coming of Christ. That is the not yet. Theologians call this the already and not yet framework of eschatology and in charismatic doctrine, it is all right now. If only you have the faith to believe it. Well, over the past 50 years, the charismatic movement has exploded onto the global scene at an alarming rate. It is the fastest growing religious movement in the world today. I had a missionary call me from the Philippines He went over to the Philippines to start a Bible college for pastors and plant healthy, good, biblically sound churches. And what he found over there was charismania. And he called me and he said, listen, I know that you have experience in turning things around that were out of kilter doctrinally. How did you do that? I said, my friend, you just need to preach the word of God. Just continue to be steadfast, holding firmly to the word of God. And God will do the transforming. You are faithful to his word and he will transform the hearts and lives of his own people. So, John MacArthur says now, the charismatics number more than half a billion people worldwide. And yet the gospel is the gospel that is driving their numbers is not the true gospel. And the spirit behind this movement is not the Holy Spirit. And as I close, I want to ask, you know, are there true believers in this movement? There certainly are. There is a remnant of true believers who are in this movement that God has called to himself And yet they have undergone some horrible, horrible teaching. What do we do? My friends, we don't, I'm not here to malign them. I want to pray for them. I want to see the word of God richly transforming their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So it is a matter of us praying diligently. You may have friends that are involved in the charismatic movement. You may have family members that are involved. Diligently pray 
that God would open their eyes to the truth of his word. Diligently pray that God would cause them to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, the last scripture that I have for you this evening is from 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. And this is for you. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is true in our day. Many, many false prophets have gone out into the world. So as you are listening to good sound preaching, be aware, be aware that there are false teachers that are out there. Pray for your friends who may be involved in it. Pray for your family members and speak the truth in love to them. Okay? Because the word of God is powerful and it will transform their lives. Amen. Thank you, brother, for, for leading us in that meditation. Just so rich, so much packed in there and uh, I know it's beneficial for us in so many ways. Why don't we go now? Let's close in prayer and ask the Lord's blessing on us that we may grow in appreciation of his word. And for those who are now engaged and trapped in this teaching, Father, we ask for your mercy on those around the world who have been taught enormously poorly and who are now believing and hoping and investing their, their lives, their money, their hopes and dreams and promises that your word never gives. And they are looking to you to honor the promises that you have never made. And Father, we ask mercy on them. We ask that you would make them aware of the shortcomings of what they are now being taught and that you would draw them by your grace through your word, draw them to a better, more rich, more faithful reading of your word that they may see all of your promises are yes in Christ and cast their hopes upon him and invest entirely in eternity to honor you. Father, and I, we thank you for how you have shown mercy to us. We know that it is not because we are smarter or wiser that we believe any different or better, but because of your mercy on us. And yet, oh God, we confess readily that we do not honor your word nearly to what it is worth. We set it aside, we neglect it, We do not study it and meditate and memorize and let it fill our minds and hearts as it should. And so, Father, would you work in us that we may not only give lip service to the value of it, but that our lives may shine brightly with the light of your word. And, Father, work in us that we may Be what you call us to be as believers, as Christians, as your church. In Christ's name, amen.